Hey guys, welcome to VS Energy's Commissioning Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Nick Taliska. So in today's podcast, we will be discussing the functional test design and application. And I think a good starting point for this episode would be to kind of recap a little bit about our last episode. And we we dove into the functional test in our last episode, but more about the the steps to the functional test. What is involved in functional testing? How do we do it once we are, you know, when we're on site going through the specific equipment? So we covered the functional test in the the application, maybe part of it in our last episode, if you guys haven't tuned in. And this episode is more about how do we, well, I guess design and apply it. So we're just diving more into the functional test in this episode, bringing it past what we did on our previous one. And I suppose to start, we can begin with talking about how do we, where does this functional test come from? Where do we generate, like what documents do we use to generate the functional test? And my little list, you know, I, I from experience, design drawings, obviously, uh, sequence of operations, the specification. Do you guys want to get into more detail with that? Yeah, this is important uh, to get into some more detail on this because uh, all of those things that you mentioned, Clayton, design, drawing, sequence of operation, anything else, sure, those are part and parcel of it. And in fact, in some cases, uh, specifically in medical or laboratory facilities or clean room environments, a thorough and complete design would include a commissioning spec, which actually has the fundamentals of the functional tests already defined. What do you mean by that? Not you're not the, the saying... basic intent. So it'd be the basic intent. We were on a job uh, a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, that was a medical facility and the fundamentals of the functional tests were actually defined for a vivarium where uh, there had to be actually a load cell uh, installed in the space that generated heat it didn't say it needed to be propane, electric, natural gas, whatever, that generated a spe- specific uh, amount of BTUs to test the capacity of the cooling within the room uh, or rooms, multiple rooms, so that they, the final functionality of the cooling system was tested so that they didn't get the, the building populated and completely finished and then find out that oh, the, the room doesn't work to capacity. And we actually uh, were just contacted by another client that we worked for for many years that has gone through an entire new HVAC system install and can't cool the building. So we, we went from one extreme to the other where, okay, here's a, here's a specification that uh, defines exactly what we want to see, a true functional test of cooling capacity to one which specified no, really no commissioning and certainly no functional testing or load testing of the HVAC system and you know, what the result was when they ended up. So there are some specs like that. Now, in the absence of that kind of specification for functional testing, it is the it falls to the purview of the commissioning agent to design a functional test which will demonstrate the, um, you know, whatever is within the boundaries of the commissioning scope, the performance of the system. Yeah. So, Mark, on a situation like that, if I understood right, 
it, the commissioning, the functional testing wasn't robust or existent. You came in, your company, and then you were going to be tasked with designing functional test procedures then? Uh, no, I'm, I'm only saying that the system's been up and running six months and there was no commissioning performed and there was certainly in that light no functional testing performed. Now the building's fully occupied. It makes any sort of remediation retrofit much more difficult. So as we go through a design bid build or design build project in either case absent a quality assurance process like commissioning which includes pre-functional functional testing the remediation of a project is much more difficult and now we're at the finger pointing stage where it you know the designer it's not me the builder it's not me the controls company it's not me and you know like like you say, Nick, we have to go in and be the sheriff and say, okay, who, who's the bad actor? Or what, where is the gap in performance between owner's project requirement and what we actually have built? So maybe in a case like that, let's say you had to go and redo commissioning. What would be like, what would you tell the owner you want to see as far as documentations? Would it be give me everything on your project or is it more the discrete items like Clayton saying? Design drawings, give me your sequence of operations, equipment schedules, et cetera. As built, if there are any. All, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. As built, balancing, balancing documents. Balancing, yeah. Uh, you know, balancing documents will, you know, definitely tell you a lot of what you need to know because the design drawings are one thing, but if an air balance or air and water balance is performed properly, that can really uh, shed some light on problems with system capacity or cooling delivery capacity or heating de uh, delivery capacity. So that's, a, that's an important element. And then the pre-functional test results, let's make sure that everything was started up correctly. So the HVAC system was started up by the factory people or whomever started it up. The pre-functional tests were all performed by the controls company. And if they're not, then, you know, your, the, the forensic diagnosis and analysis becomes much more challenging. If, you know, in the absence of that documentation, we're back at the, okay, let's do the foundational tests that we need to before we can even begin to ascertain what's not working. I can imagine going, if, there, if there was no functional testing, there's probably very limited, if you want to call it pre-functional testing too, past, you know, does... Does it turn on? I, I can imagine there's not too much. You, you might be surprised there. There could be more of a, it is the construction checklist and that's where the process ended. Right, right, right. yeah. That could happen too. Mm -hmm. Especially with new equipment, not so much with retrofit equipment, but equipment manufacturers nowadays really, in general, do a very good job of starting up and documenting conditions during the startup so that they can be comfortable with warrantying their products. It, it's a risk mitigation policy and standard, and I really have no issue with that because uh, certainly if, if the designer has specified equipment that have to operate outside the boundaries of what would be considered reasonable or normal, the equipment manufacturer has the right to identify 
hey, you're, you're, you specified our equipment, but the application is atypical or otherwise abnormal and outside the boundaries of normal operation. Therefore, we have limited liability. But that doesn't, well, I, I'm speculating, but I'm assuming, say, it's a whatever, a package rooftop unit. They're not necessarily going in and looking at, okay, what is my minimum outside air damper doing when it's this or that? I mean, they probably make sure it's functionally okay, but not so much like the little into the, into the details of it. I could be wrong. You know, like if you're having issues cooling. And who are you talking about there, Clayton? I'm sorry, contractors or manufacturers? Manufacturers, yeah. So like, yeah, we're going to put a rooftop unit on. Does it turn on? Does it go into heating? Does it go into cooling? But they may not. I mean, they're assuming balancing is going to set the minimum for minimum outside air and all such. But I don't know. I could be wrong. But Well, but in the case of an air handler, though, if there's excess system static pressure, uh, reduced airflow across a cooling coil or a heating coil or anything like that, they will identify that. Okay. You know, if, mm-hmm. if they have an exceptionally high rise across a heating coil, they'll immediately identify that, hey, you know, our airflow is low mm-hmm. or we have an exceptionally low discharge air temperature, our airflow is low and, and those kinds of things. And that's a, that's a good starting point. You go through those checklists and right. if everything's okay and they say it's okay, you can usually take that to the bank because, you know, the big companies are all about, hey, we want to make sure that we don't have a callback that is a result of what they would consider improper operation of their equipment. Well, and it is interesting, some commissioning you know, projects with big uh, major pieces of equipment, I've seen it extend back to the manufacturer's house, so to speak. And there's a level of commissioning that's done there before major rooftop units are all shipped out to a site. So there is a lot that can happen even before the equipment gets on site. But and maybe when we talk about these, you know, what's what's needed to generate and design these functional test procedures, it's very easy because these projects are so varied and there's a million examples that yeah, I guess you do have to take a step back in a way, but also start at the end of what you're trying to do. But it's also look going back to the beginning. It's all a big loop, right? Where the design should reflect the owner's project requirements. And then the reality should match the design and commissioning can be thought of as the process by which uh, the reality is checked against the design, you know, as per the contractor's installation. So, and I guess I'm sensitive to the whole, you know, there's a lot of information and documentation you can get on any project. And then when it comes down to really, thinking about, well, what do I need there? If you were designing a functional test procedure, not for an entire building, but, and I like to take things to extreme sometimes when I'm just playing around with them in my mind and look at the simplest thing and the most complex, but for something like this, if it was just a multi-zone to VAV conversion and you're charged with designing a functional test procedure, you know, what's the first thing that comes to mind that you think you're gonna wanna see? I mean, Clayton, you could answer this, Mark. Yeah, I got to ask the question. So, when we're gonna we're gonna convert a multi-zone to VAV, are we doing it with the by splitting the zone dampers on the multi-zone into separate heating and cooling dampers, or are we actually putting VAV boxes out at the end of the runs? I mean, there's 
two different ways to approach it. Number one. Well, then so the, then what would be the documentation you would? Well, let's say I'm just a, we're role playing here, and I'm just the guy at the facility right. to get you what you right. need, and I'm just looking at you with a glazed look right now, saying what? <laughs> so I need some drawings. I need yeah. I need to see how this was done because there are a number of ways you can accomplish that. Then I need to and include it in the drawings. Now, assuming somebody really you know knew what they were doing, let me see the fan curves. Let me see the performance curves on the fan to make sure we can basically provide enough downstream static if we are converting to VAV boxes in the space. Have we added any other, have we split off zones into multiple VAVs now? And how are we controlling discharge? There's just a a range of questions to start with, but it would all start with some designer, you know, said this is the way we want to do it. And there's, there's a range of performance in terms of individual space control space temperature control and energy that you're that you're bounded by and based on the designer's intent they'll do it one way or another way and you need to understand all that before you go in and try and design a, a functional test well yeah and are and we so whatever no go ahead clay oh i was just gonna say are we assuming that the commissioning agent is getting plopped into this project once it's built and done or have they been involved throughout the construction process well i'll clarify that at least in my mind i'm just thinking of any type of situation so for the design drawings it would be you know if it's you're involved in the project and it's ongoing then whatever level your design drawings are right if they're conceptual and you're trying mm-hmm. to design these tests that would be what what you would have the 35 percent level if it's two years later then i'll like I think Mark said earlier, as-built drawings would probably be done. And mm-hmm. Let's just look at a real fundamental example that many people can relate to, even residential people. Have any of you ever had the opportunity to have your local utility company do a home energy audit free? No. Okay. So I'll, I'll, they do that. You can, you can call up your utility company and say, I'd like a home energy audit. And... Uh, typically a guy shows up with a truck. He's mm-hmm. got maybe a thermal imaging camera. He has a moisture sensor. And the first thing they want to do is a blower door test. So a blower door test, you affix usually and not always a well instrumented blower to the, to a door in the, in the building. And it can be commercial. It can be you know residential, whatever it is. And, that fan will provide calibrated airflow into the building by which you can measure your infiltration or exfiltration from the building. And so the guy showed up at our house built in 1852. And uh, I said, okay, so what are we looking to accomplish with this? He said, well, we're going to tell you how tight your building is. I said, okay, so are you going to climb on the roof and cap the seven chimneys that are in the house? Oh, seven chimneys. I said, uh, what should we do about the kitchen hood, which has a, a backdraft damper on it? And what about the bathroom exhaust fans that have bathroom da- backdraft dampers on them? Well, I said, all those exit through the roof. Are you going to block all those off? Um, no. I said, then what's the point of the test? So my position on this is that the Function, the, the functional testing, which that's what that is, right? A blower door test is a functional test. How tight is the construction of the building? Without the thought process before as to 
let's you know examine all of the building openings that are and i also talked to him about what do we do about the uh exhaust from the hot water boiler that is my backup boiler to the geothermal i also talked to him what do we do about that well i, I don't really know well that's the wrong answer so the functional test designer whoever it was whoever sent this guy out from the utility company needs to have a checklist for them to say, okay, have we taken all these things into account? Have we remediated the exfiltration that is normal or actually controlled? When you turn off your exhaust fan in the kitchen, the flapper damper goes shut. Turn off your exhaust fan in the bathroom, the flapper damper goes shut. Or are we just uh, going to do a functional test so we can check the box and say, yep, the 1852 construction house leaks like a sieve? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think that's like the the best the best point in that story was like the the what next part. Yeah. You know, so what are you going to tell me with this information to start with? Because then that'll exactly you know whether everything you're pointing out, which sounds absolutely correct, is is worth doing, or is it going to be like you said, your house is old, sir? Okay. <laughs> exactly. Well, and there there that is exactly my point, Nick. They there there was no comprehensive plan. You know, and certainly this may be more relevant in new construction. And, you know, we just finished a process project recently where if they did a blower door test, the building leaks like a sieve. And consequently, they have infiltration of uh, relative humidity and other issues. But, you know, those kinds of things are important. But the design of the plan and the execution of the plan are uh, of the test plan are extremely important. Well, and that's why I think of it as this big loop and maybe that's not the right terminology, but, and, and a lot of the, when, you know, when, when I'm thinking about these VAV conversions and things like that, you know, an air handling unit, I love them as examples because they have so many different things, right? They have airflow, right. they have hydronics, they have little components and valves and dampers and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I've seen, commissioning reports on, on VAV conversions that have gone through all these steps, right? You look at the, you know, binary conditions of, okay, it's going to either be off or it's going to be on. And when it's off, what do we expect to do? And off is right. even kind of complicated, right? There's a lot of stuff you need to happen when a thing is not running, uh, dampers closed, valves in their positions, whatever. So then you get into the on case, right? And you have, well, it's, you know, going to modulate airflow, through a VFD or a VSD, and that's going to be responding to a change in static pressure in the system, which is affected by VAV boxes opening and closing, responding to their zone temperature set, uh, set points, and then also respecting any minimum airflow settings. So, you know, there's a minimum range there where it has to operate and things have to be checked out, and that could pass and everything's fine. And then full, full airflow, maximum load, everything can be working fine, but then it's everything that happens in the middle there that I guess kind of complicates it depending on what your, your overall, you know, owner owner's project requirements are or what the goal of the project is. So my point with the VAVs is, is I've seen a lot of reports that say, yeah, the fan is modulating. It's going up and down in response to static pressure. But then if one of your requirements for the project let's say is that this system's replacement is going to save you X amount of money. And that was a big part of 
you know, securing capital funding to do this work, then you need to know, is it going up and down enough? And that's where I guess things can be, that's when having a good commissioning authority throughout the project really helps because in commissioning, I mean, you're basically, you're verifying the contractor's installation, not necessarily the design, right? That, that part should have happened and will continue to happen even after some of these commissioning efforts. But I don't know if all that makes sense, but when I think through these simple examples in my mind, they often get complicated with, you know, the real world stuff that I know is out there. And, and this is one of those demodulating applications are, are tough to, I guess, completely get a sense of through a lot of the discrete testing that's kind of set up, or at least at a standard in the industry. Thoughts, input? Yeah, I have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so I, I, I'm gonna take your modulating case one step further, okay? So we have a building where the space temperature in the building is the, the dry bulb temperature is fine and dandy. The relative humidity in the building runs at between 70 and 80% right now, right? And now we're in August and the owner has inquired as to what is going on. You know, you can't even run a copier in the building because the paper sticks together and it's curling up. And, you know, the, uh, there, there are myriad um, outfall issues associated with a level of relative humidity that high. Sure. So what's the reason? No reason. Well, Okay. Clayton's got it. Uh, <laughs> it's that easy. Or the units are oversized. That's my guess. Right now, Mark, tell them what the problem is. Yeah. Okay. So in our, in our house, if our air conditioning unit runs, we don't have, we don't have reheat. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And house typically runs uh, 40%. You know, my house, I run uh, depressed chill water temperature. So it runs a little lower, but the, the point is, if the design oversized the air handlers yep. by a significant amount, the air handlers cycle for a very brief period of time, bring down the dry bulb temperature, but do not run a sufficient amount of time to Did reduce moisture that? content. So whose fault is that? The contractor, the controls guy, none of the above. If you grossly oversize the air handling capacity on the cooling side, you're not doing anyone any favors because the units don't run enough to dehumidify. Now, so that's a great example where you could have had a commissioning process, and correct me if I'm wrong, that was textbook perfect right from start to finish. As far as they, they commissioned that the contractor installed it per the design. Yes. The problem you're seeing has nothing to do with installation, materials, whatever, workmanship. It has to go back to the design was the problem all along. Correct. Yeah. But you would find that when you went in and you said, okay, let's test this unit doing dehumidification, maybe, right? 
I mean, if there, if in the Not OPR well, there was a spec saying we want to keep the facility between six, 50 and 60% RH, and then in part of the design and the sequence, they said there's going to be a dehumidification process, you would test that. Okay, so I'll ask the question. In general, when you build a house or build a light commercial facility or whatever, is there a, in general, and I'm not saying no, right no, wrong, I see where you're going. Do with you it. see a RH spec? No, most most. If you see, I ask, you know, Joe, homeowner, you know, a young couple comes in and we want to build a new house. Well, okay, what kind of space temperature are you comfortable in? Oh, 72 year round, 74. Right. 70, they want to be energy conscious. They'll be 75 or 76 in the summer and mm-hmm. 68 or 69 in the winter, and that's okay. Is there a thought process given to to indoor air quality, radon, relative humidity, any of the other things that impact environment, most likely not. So it's Correct. incumbent that that educated professionals or skilled professionals at least uh, say, well, we need to make sure because, hey, we're in uh, Georgia or South Carolina, that we have some dehumidification capacity and here's how we accomplish that and this is what we expect to happen. All I'm saying is that without taking that into consideration, you risk an oversight in the design and end up in a situation where, uh oh, we have now we have a problem. But, yeah, that's residential. So I mean all you know industrial and commercial specs would include some kind of nod to wet bulb or uh, relative humidity in their spaces. I mean that's fairly common. I agree. Okay. So I kind of agree now with Clayton that that should have been, if you were designing a proper, not that you can test for necessarily those design conditions all the time, but I don't think that in your example, that's really what you're talking about was, hey, we had a record temperature and humidity outside. And guess what? We had a hard time controlling the indoor environment. That does happen. But I would think, like Clayton said, I think you'd be able to, with a well thought out, uh, functional test would have identified in the commissioning process that the unit was oversized. You know, from the, the frequent cycling, I guess, would be the first thing that would be evident. Well, I'm going to go one step back. If they were following the ASHRAE 2005 guidelines, the engineer would provide load calcs, a basis of design uh, document, potentially a peer review, which would have identified right then and there that, hey, we have uh, units that are potentially oversized. Is there some enormous, you, basically they're sized for some enormous heat load in the space, which is not there. If you had a heat load in the space, and to Clayton's earlier point, that would essentially function as your reheat, right? So now I'm adding sensible load to the space. The units would run longer and dehumidify. Well, the solution is easy then. Put a fire in the middle of the room and there you yeah. go. A reheat coil. I don't know. Yep. Well, that is an interesting uh, little tale there. It has a lot in it, even though it's kind of a residential. Well, no, it's, this, is a, this is a commercial facility. Oh, my mistake. Yeah. Put the last 15 seconds out and take us up again here, Clayton. <laughs> well, no, no. So to, to kind of bring that all together then, though, Mark, like the, the point – just what is the overarching point of this where we're saying that like the importance of functional testing, you can identify design issues or contractor issues or 
whatever issues. It doesn't, you're not necessarily going there to scrutinize what the contractor did, what the contractor installed. It's the system operation as a whole, right? That's correct. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me just clarify. So commissioning is not there to, in your words, to scrutinize what the contractor did as far as the installation? Functional functional operation. Functional test is not there. I mean, we should have been through all that before we get to functional test. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Segmenting this down, pre-functional versus functional. Right. Okay, fully on board. But at some point, and I don't want to stay to get into the weeds too much, but at some point, depending on what what was done to the facility, if it's an existing facility and there was this retrofit to go into VAVs like Nick mentioned, you as a commissioning agent have to focus on what was done, not what is existing too, to some extent, right? I mean, if you're looking at it as a system and and this small this part of the system has changed you don't you can worry about the rest of it the the upstream stuff but you can't i don't know you got to draw the line somewhere too right when you say upstream you're talking about the rest of the building or yeah sure chiller the rest plant? Of the, yeah yeah there there's a i don't know yeah if that chiller plant for example i don't know maybe you're not getting the design chilled water but that wasn't part of the project because your chiller plant sucks mm. what do you do then so well, then I, I'm going to assume we're talking about this in the context of a design build project, um, per, perhaps even an ESPC project. Maybe. I mean, you could, what if they, what if it's a facility that bid out the VAV upgrade, but didn't, the chiller plant was not part of the project? Well, I would assume, and perhaps incorrectly, that the responsible contractor would qualify their bid or another another way say we assume there is sufficient quantity of x degree chill water and this flow right this many tons etc for delivery to this unit right without that i mean that's a then you get to the oh moment when you try and start the thing up and we're max flow on the pump the valves are wide open and we don't have enough cooling so but you could not a good day you could say at that point yes the contractor passed commit functional testing because everything they did was correct but they're not getting enough chilled water so that goes back to the owner to say we got to do something now then you can still pass functional testing for what you did as a contractor or whatever but if the rest of the system isn't doing its job, it may not necessarily be. Doesn't fall into your, onto your lap then. Well, I, I think you're right, Clayton, in, in the importance of setting these boundaries or scope. You know, right. And I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but it's just something I thought was worth discussing. Well, no, and it also it works both ways too, because you wouldn't want necessarily somebody out there commissioning your air handling unit. And then adjusting chilled water temperatures, let's say, and lowering them down to get the performance out of that air handling unit if it was designed to work with the existing, you know, 45 degree chilled water temperature. Right. You know, you want them necessarily cranking it down to 42 and saying, okay, now we're getting what we expected out of the system. Well, it's 
we're in the weeds now, so I'll carry. I was on. just going to say we didn't <laughs> want to go in the weeds. <laughs> I know. So I'm straight, but I'm, here we go. I'm gonna I'm gonna cite an example from a project that we Clayton and I were on actually, where a new chilled water plant was installed. The original building construction was from about 1980. Air handling units, everything 1980, well maintained, really well maintained equipment. I I, I was. Uh, I have to be extremely complimentary because if anybody listens to this that was on the site, big air handlers, 50-some thousand CFM, and a lot of them. And the new chilled water design called for 44-degree chilled water. Now, all of the air handling units were designed, all the coils were designed and sized for 42-degree chilled water. So early on in the project, you know, I brought this up to the design rec- designers of record and, oh yeah we'll just change the set point to 42 okay that you know and that email went back and forth between the designer of record and myself and we got to the startup and you know i and i also will uh again express my fascination and fixation on magnetically levitated chillers so four big chillers the, and just as a aside, another aside to the side, the startup on a mag bearing chiller takes two days. I mean, these guys, you talk about pre-functional test and functional test. They do it right. And they will not push the go button if anything is outside the boundaries of what they are expecting. So I'm, I'm there witnessing some of the pre-functional checklist and said oh by the way we have to reduce the chill water set point from 44 to 42 the guy told me no not doing it he said what do you mean these chillers were tested at 44 degrees i said i know but we need 42 degree chill water to start those chillers with 42 degree chill water it needed to go back to the factory and, and you know this is all it's a typical chill water set point we're not asking for 40 or 38 uh, hmm. but they needed to approve that for startup before he could push the go button. So my point is you have those things. It's important that everybody be on the same page because if they had run the chill water 44 degrees, humidity in the facility was of extreme concern and there's no way they would have been dehumidifying at the rate that they should have been or anywhere near design if they'd run that system with 44 degree chill water. And so what happened? Everything worked fine at 42 degree chill water. But my point is that the, the integration of a new design into an existing system requires the consideration of what is downstream and or upstream right. from whatever it is you're redesigning. Right. You know? mm-hmm. And the design basically came, came out like it was for a brand new building where all the coils are sized for 44, everything's ready to go without the consideration of, hey, we're connecting to stuff that is, you know, 25, 30 years old, and we need to know what the requirements are for those coils, not what we would typically install in a brand new building. Yeah, so it takes involvement of every party of of the whole system to ensure that. Yeah. If you guys don't like that story, edit it out. No, no, no. I like it. I like it. But what I'm gonna I'm gonna just drag us right out of the weeds right now, though. So I was <laughs> I was looking at Ashray 2005, right? And I assume 
different terminology, but the functional test, well, we're calling the functional test in ASHRAE 2005, they're calling the test procedures document. No? Yes? Will that probably yeah. be the same? So they have a yeah, little chart, right? They have a little chart that says who is responsible for this, right? And then it's reviewed by, they say that too. You know, I found extremely interesting and had not expected this in that they say the functional test procedures document is reviewed and maybe reviewed by just to look at it, but the commissioning agent, obviously the contractor and the design team. I didn't like, what is, what, what input does the contractor have? Probably nothing. Are they just looking at it to say, yeah, okay. No, I think also as a commissioning agent or authority, I've never had to construct mechanical fixtures, test boxes, et cetera, for a project. So if there are specifics, you know, like the, I was talking about the uh, heat load generation that have to be constructed, that falls to the purview of the mechanical or electrical contractor or both. So I think they need to look at it from constructability, cost, reasonability, and those kinds of things, because, you know, there's a hundred ways that to do that. And we want to do it efficiently from a cost perspective and time perspective. And they would have input on that. Right. They're not, they're not reviewing it to say, I don't know. We think you should look at the discharge air temperature sensor and put a two K ohm, you know, variable resistor on it and test like you're doing all that. You're saying, this is how we're doing this. They're just looking at it as a constructability. What do we need to provide so they can complete these functional tests. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. Like I said, when I was just reviewing that, I was like, why would it, would the contractor be involved in this step? Didn't make sense to me, but now it does. Perfect. What about, and again, we, I have my experience with this, but like what, what do the functional tests, the documents look like once, once they're prepared, right? What format is there? Like I've done it in Excel, made some nice spreadsheets with columns saying, you know, this is what we're checking. This is the date reviewed by, you know, pass or fail, sign a date. And that's in an Excel, you know, spreadsheet. Um, Is that what they generally look like for other entities? Or can this be done in a myriad of different ways? Is there a standard? Oh, a hundred different ways. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, I mean, most of the stuff I've seen has been, you know, word-based, but still, I mean, obviously tables, but there's a lot of text and narrative. So, mm-hmm. uh, but again, I would, when you receive the data back, it's also good to have it in a nice organized fashion that's not, you know, necessarily handwritten that it's, you know, there could be any confusion yeah. over what a number is. So, yep. but you know, the form and format, whether it's Excel or Word, I don't know if it's that consequential, except that it's clear and, you know, they, and they can, you need enough room for all your equipment and all that. So it can be a, yeah. a design chore in itself to kind of, if you're looking at one of these from scratch to uh, put it together, but you know, they need, they need to be well organized too. And, and, you know, with just about any system, there's you know, going to be multiple components or subsystems that need to mm-hmm. be checked too. And once you kind of get that down, it has to be sequenced too. So you're doing the test procedures in a, in a reasonable fashion and, and order, but it yeah. is very important to be organized with your documents. No doubt about it. Yeah. And like I said, I'm just asking this for you guys and for listeners. Like I said, my experience is I'm going to go ahead and generate an Excel spreadsheet table 
you know, this is air handler one, two, three, four, ten. Chill water system. It's all broken up like that. Individual pieces of equipment or systems, whatever. And then you have your spec items. You know, what does it need to do? You go off your sequence of operations. Say this is what it needs to do when it turns on. As whatever control input changes, how does the system respond? Uh, and you go through everything, check it. Yep, good. No, good. Whatever. And there you go. You have your your table for each piece of equipment for functional testing. I just want to try to paint a visual picture for everybody. Like, what does that look like if you haven't done it? Or if you have done it, does yours, do do they vary much? And I guess they can from what we're talking about, which makes sense, I guess, as long as it's organized. Yeah. And, and they should all have a, you know, the, the right amount, the right elements in there. Yeah. And like I said, the, the exact style can differ, but one mm-hmm. thing I'd like to add too is an example can go a long way too, especially when you're discussing these. And usually these aren't, you know, a form that you would email off to somebody and say, review this, let me know if you have any questions and then uh, send it back to me when you're done. You know, it's not really how the process would work. So there'd be more interaction, but even having a, a sample at the end of a functional test plan about, you know, this is the level of detail or how, you know, when you have a, something that says describe the control sequence, it's either going to be a copy and paste from existing documents, or it might be something that will be spelled out there. And sometimes it's good to have an example of, uh, and it helps to set the expectation. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. Agreed. I think that, yep. Okay. It really clarifies things. Yep. Oh, that does not Mark. Thank you for saying that though. It does. I always give people examples. Well, you can do this, you can do that. You can, you have some options, but in the event that there's a vacuum or a deer in the headlights look, well, here's the way I would do it. So what about once we generate our functional test procedures and we have these, we'll call them blank, unfilled out documents, right? We know what we're going to test and how we're going to test it. Does the commissioning agent then dictate that schedule that says, okay, at this date and time, assuming construction is on track, which we've been following through as a commissioning agent, for the most part, um, we say at this date and time, we're testing this system and then we're testing this and then we're doing this. Like you, you lay out that schedule for everyone or is this more of a team input? Uh, it's absolutely a team input. You yeah. send out a meeting invite or you, you mm-hmm. do it in some method like that because, you know, I really dislike the term dictate. We, we don't want to do that. We want to collaborate. Yeah. And bring everybody together for what we all hope is a successful test and um, go to the next one. So, right. Right. So it's a kind of a group scheduling to say, if everyone's good with it, construction's done, all team members, probably including the controls, people, the, the um, mechanical people, electricians, whoever's involved in this, we're going to do this, this, and this, this day, everyone agrees. And we go ahead and functionally test. Correct. You know, maybe one way to look at a commissioning authority's role is, and I don't like this way of looking at it necessarily, but as, you know, the teacher, and there's going to be, these are the tests, right? We're all Mm -hmm. going to, these tests are going to be taken at the end, but, you know, let's go over what's on the test. So I thought maybe you were talking more about the design of the test, and that's a collaborative effort, and I'm not poo-pooing that at all, but there is a certain role and responsibility that comes with 
being the commissioning authority on it, that sometimes you do need to say, this is how we're going to do this test. And you may have done it differently and, you know, but we're not doing it that way on this test. No, I, th I think you're right on the spot on that because when we yeah. have engaged other entities, even to opine about a test, their opinion is generally of the point that this is way too rigorous. And if you read, you know, Richard Marcinko, hey, we sweat hard in training, so we bleed less in battle. It's simple. We're going to test this because all of our reputations and all of our liability will either increase or decrease based on the performance and outcomes of these tests. So let us not snivel that the test is too rigorous. Let's do it right and be done with it. No, agreed. So when you were talking about more of the, we have to all decide the approach, we're talking about the schedule schedule for doing the functional testing. Okay. Yeah. Not what the functional right. testing necessarily is. Okay. So that kind of leads us into my next topic of discussion. I say, and we've covered this, I think very extensively in, in previous episodes in our commissioning series here, but like the, the levels of quality and detail in commissioning, I can assume like anything vary, right? Depending on who is the commissioning agent. Some people like Mark, you and I, VS Energy, we, uh, we're very, very, very detailed and extensive in our commissioning. Probably not always the case, right? Well, Clayton, I think you've had the opportunity to observe other entities doing commissioning. Yeah, that's I would true. ask you, what's your thought process? Yeah, no, I, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm, I have to bite my tongue because yeah. I, I, I don't want to you know, say anything that is absolutely not acceptable on here because what I see is such a vast spectrum right. that uh, it's just not even, some are not acceptable, but you, you can opine on this. No, no. I mean, I agree completely. I guess I was just looking for you to confirm what I was already thinking. Well, new, not thinking, but yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a huge array and quality and obviously maybe some of the, the less extensive functional testing is going to be a lot cheaper to pay for if you're a building owner whereas okay more functional testing more time more involvement costs more money but like anything i assume you get what you pay for at the end of the day yeah you could probably really skimp out and not have good functional testing and everything could work fine. And that's great because the manufacturer did their checks and the controls people were pretty good at what they did, but that also could not always be the case. And I assume there's a lot of legal and financial impacts on that as well. Then if you're the, if you're the commissioning agent that maybe didn't do it to the level of detail that was required. Right. I agree. So this is where, I don't know, back in the day, the big Fram oil filter tagline was pay me now or pay me later. So, it, and I'll, I'll just extrapolate on one small example. When we commission air handling units, Nick, and, and you might get a kick out of this, the first things we check are the shutdown of the air handlers closing the outside air dampers or, or proper action of the outside air dampers on fire alarm shutdown, on high limit thermostat shutdown and on freeze stat shutdown. So we do that when the control system is in automatic 
But then at the same time or immediately thereafter, we put all the systems in hand mm -hmm. and test again. The reason we do that is to confirm that the free, the, all the safety circuits are wired correctly before any handoff auto switches and are not in any way using the controller or control device as an interstitial device to operate the outside air dampers, perhaps the chill water, hot water valves, or the fan circuit. And I can tell you for firsthand that failure to do that has cost uh, commissioning agents hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages because controllers have been used as interstitial devices or the the safety circuit is only wired through the auto side of a handoff auto switch and failure to completely and thoroughly test that. If, if, if a bad thing happens and a commissioning agent is identified as an entity that should have or has knowledge of building systems like that and they were on the job, you will get assigned damages. So, that's a, that's an example of the pay me now or pay me later. I can't think of how many projects we've been on where we test those and you have to go back and rewire because you can run these systems in auto with no safety circuits engaged. That I mean in hand with no safety circuits engaged and that is not acceptable. Fire alarm shutdown has to occur in every instance. Low limit shutdown, dampers close has to occur in every instance. So that's just one example, but we have numerous firsthand accounts of this. And actually we were engaged as a, a subject matter expert in a legal case where the commissioning agent was pulled in and the, the uh, arbitrator assigned damages to them. Okay. Are we, we're, I mean, there's two different things here we're talking about. One's like the level of quality, I think was where Clayton's first question was mm -hmm. talking about. And then, we're getting into life safety and, and code violations and, and things Whoa. like that here, right? Well, I think what yeah, Mark's are, just we, saying, we are. you okay, could get well. your commissioning agent that comes through and uh, systems and automatic and they say, okay, hit my free stat and it shuts off, everything works. And they say, okay, moving on to the next thing. But well, take it one step further, Clayton. We were just on a job. Was the free stat ever checked? No. There you go. Or was the, the fire alarm shutdown ever checked? No, and that's when we noticed that it was wired in parallel on that series, so it would have never shut off the system. You it would have never shut down. Yeah, so now I agree that, but I think that was that was Mark's point. Nick was just saying the level of quality and I don't know how you know how in depth the commissioning agent gets. Maybe the commissioning agent could just go through everything's an auto, hit the free stat, shuts off, they move on to the next thing. That's quick and easy, but. Or they don't even address it. Or they or they don't even address it, but you need to be able to go through and look at all these these, you know, possibilities of what can happen. We're going to assume that at some point in time a facilities person's going to put the unit the drive into hand because of whatever reason and forget about it. And then if the free stat trips and the the BMS is the system putting it into shutdown, that fan's still gonna run and whatever, whatever, you know. So it requires a, a level of detail that may not generally occur. Oh, no, brilliant points there. I just didn't want yeah. to jump on the, the bandwagon of, you know, the whole the quality and the, it's, you know, the more you pay for, the better quality you get. 
and I just want to, I guess, be that dissenting view that that's not necessarily the case. And to have different levels of quality, I think, is fine as long as the people that are providing that quality and the people that are receiving that quality both agree in advance. And then once that quality level is established, it doesn't change through the project. That's, you know, oh, that's I agree 100% with that, Nick. So I, you know, I look at it like uncertainty with savings projections, let's say, to stay in this domain we're in here, right? You could say, I want to be 100% confident that I'm getting these savings. Well, that's a whole different level of quality, and you will pay for that. Oh, absolutely. Now, if you're only okay, if you only need to be 90% sure, well, then that's different. And so it's good to pay for what I guess you need, and sometimes you can overpay for what you don't need. Well, even for us, I mean, I know we, we, um, we look heavily into the control loops and we put on, uh, you know, for temperature sensing or anything, we, we go to the controller and we put on our 2K ohm variable resistor and adjust the, the temperature reading to the BMS to watch the system respond. And other entities may not do that and may not have to do that to still ensure the system is functional and safe. We take it probably a step further to ensure everything runs exactly how it should. So if that makes sense. Just and, and Nick, a couple of thoughts. You know, one thing to, especially on verification of savings, I mean, that's a, uh, you know, a, com a combined process of the, the physical, which is taking the measurements, the mathematical, okay, how accurate are calculations, and the statistical, where as you go down that statistical road or any of those roads, you have to make the call and say, okay, where is the marginal cost versus the marginal benefit to achieve that level of certainty? And as you said, you want 100% certainty, that costs an astronomical amount. You want 90% certainty, much more reasonable. You want 80% certainty, you know, very economical, easy to do. But, you know, in the commissioning side, I think there is something to be said for efficiency as well. And, you know, obviously you're an efficient practitioner, but, uh, you know, if you're an efficient practitioner, you have your tools ready, you show up on time, you know what the process is, you get down to business and get it done versus, uh, you know, we've, we've experienced commissioning agents on projects that basically take a a wandering or meandering or a less structured approach to the actual functional testing, which has been by or large observation of, okay, adjust the set point. Let's see if it responds. Okay. Put the stamp on it. We're good to go. That in my mind is not functional testing or even commissioning. You're absolutely correct. I like that. A meandering approach. Yeah, we've seen it. I mean, you get That's that. what it is. Yeah. Uh, Wander on. You get a schedule, please. No, I, I do more of a meandering approach. I'm more of an intuitive commissioner. That's, oh, oh boy. You know, commissioning agents are assumed to be uh, experts in the systems that they commission. So, specifically uh, with regard to life safety uh, codes and standards. So, and Nick has uh, talked about air handlers and, you know, why he's in, you know, it, it's so essential to commission properly. 
heaven forbid that there's a life safety accident, which, you know, triggers a fire alarm and the commissioning agent on the project failed to uh, commission or actually functionally test in both hand and automatic positions, the operation of the inter the operation of the connection of the fire alarm system to air handling units for proper shutdown and or smoke pressurization, stairwell pressurization, any of those things. And there's, you know, a personal injury issue. You can fully expect to be engaged and, uh, investigated as to how thorough your commissioning activity really was. And if you omitted it, uh, why did you omit it? And if you did omit it based on either direction by the fire marshal or some other governing entity, you better have documentation to attest to that. And the financial impacts associated with it are you know, numerous, ranging all the way from the same thing, uh, personal injury, to uh, in other cases, especially on ESPC contracts, we've been subject matter experts on nine different ESPC contracts that failed in one way or another. And one of the common denominators was either lack of commissioning in its entirety or ineffective and incomplete commissioning uh, at, at, you know, that was the best case. So the performance of a system is extreme, you know, and that's been determined by you know, educators and uh, other subject matter experts, you know, on a, a number of a number of times, and it's well documented that how, how significantly proper commissioning affects actual performance, and actual performance directs or is directly correlated to how well an ESPC contract performs. So, as the commissioning authority, then you're liable for, I'm just thinking out loud here, for items that you should have known uh, reasonably better that, that that should not have been installed that way. Let's say like these interlocks and these safeties and all that. So things that were not done correctly, but also for things that were not in the design that should no. be? No. Okay, that's why I wanted to clarify. Let's say there was no safeties, right? And then the commissioning authority passed all the tests and said everything's great issued his report and these vital interlocks we've been talking about were not even in place i think you'd have to let's, tell let's, the owner as a commissioning agent and maybe that, that's where your your role ends but you have to bring it up yeah so nick let's let's just take one specific example and expand on it um you go to a project and the air handler, 20,000 CFM air handler has no duct smoke detectors on it. What do you do? I, I would, I would reason that you could not complete your commissioning efforts. Yeah. I mean, it would go with what Clayton's saying. What if it's a retrofit and all you're there for is to commission the performance of the, uh, energy performance. Uh, do wow. your job and tell the owner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think you have any... to. That, that is exactly correct. And if you walk away from it, you know, so it doesn't matter to us. We do a control system retrofit and we see no smoke detectors or we see free stats that are jumped out or we see high limb thermostats that are jumped out. The, no, we cease and desist on the functional test until those are remedied. 
Yeah, so that would be a case of something that may have not even been within your scope, but that you are professionally obligated. Be no different, I guess, if you walked into that mechanical room and you noticed a major safety issue, a dangerous situation in one corner of the room, right? You know, I don't know, acids yeah. leaking on the ground or something. No, absolutely. So or your, even the simple things like a refrigerant monitor in the chill water plant has been de-energized. You know, the O2 depletion sensing has been de-energized or there simple things like even not even sufficient uh, clearances in front of electrical panels. You know, how, how many times you go in a mechanical room and there's boxes of whatever stacked in front of electrical panels. Those have to be noted and part of the commissioning report. This is a safety hazard, a violation, and needs to be clear at all times. Right. But that doesn't mean you're going to see a few boxes in front of the panel and be like, nope, I'm going home until this is fixed. You're going to continue. No, no, no. no. But things that are directly impacting the systems that we are commissioning, if they're in a uns- if if they cannot be operated safely, and if I see a system without a smoke detector, uh, it cannot be operated safely. We can't operate it, not even for functional testing. Okay, yeah, so that's your job to just draw the line and say, nope, this isn't happening. Here you go, owner. Yeah, or no belt guards in place. Yep. Yep. Okay. And then once you leave the job, what whatever they do is up to them, though. You just can't be the one that initiates that or makes that call right okay yeah that makes sense yep that's a good point too nick and mark well i think the point is here that you know i think you could look at the commissioning authority as being just uh this semi-removed entity that i'm just here to check you know what's on the documents here but and then you know good or bad pass or fail and then that's it but there's a lot of cases where like you said legally commissioning authority has been uh, brought into the mix along with contractors and manufacturers and uh, yeah, everybody. It's a very involved process. It's not just black and white showing up with your checklist, check, 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 all good. I'm going home. And I think we've done a good job of covering that process pretty well for this episode and this series in the commissioning podcast. I would like to think at least, (laughs) I would agree with you for what you know, that we, matters. Yeah, we we try to, you know, we can't stress enough how involved this process is and how much, you know, you need to be aware of the system, the systems, everything involved because you can't just show up, meander through a facility, check a few boxes and say, commissioning's done, I'm going home, life is good. That's not how it works. Correct. Yep. And I'm just reiterating, like I said, reiterating points that we've, continuously made through this series and um i don't know guys with that being said do we want to wrap this episode up i could keep talking but i know it's dangerous it's very dangerous we could keep going on this we might have to have a part two of this because i think we covered a lot hopefully we made it clear for the listeners what how, how to develop a functional test what's involved in that and what the process is like and what the risks are involved in it you need to do it right and thorough because it it can come back on you for seemingly simple mistakes like your interlocks for your freestat. Yeah, you could check it when it's an auto, but when it's in hand, if you don't, and something continues to operate and something freezes and there's a big water leak, you could be liable for a lot of those damages. 
So um, you just need to be right. thorough. And that is the functional test uh, conversation for this episode. So thanks for tuning in, guys. I know this was a little bit longer of an episode, but I think there was some really great just conversation about functional testing that you guys hopefully liked as well. And stay tuned. Our next episode, we'll be discussing the recommissioning process and requirements. So that should be another great discussion. And for more information about VS Energy or Applied Facility Science, check out our webpages, www.vsenergy.us or www.appliedfacilityscience.com. A lot of great content, like I've said. And we also do some more podcasts. So if you haven't tuned into our other ones, we do an energy podcast and a BMS podcast. A lot of the same type of conversations, just covering different topics in those realms. So if you haven't, check those out too. Thanks a lot and have a great day.